Well, good morning, everyone. It is a great day to be here together. I've enjoyed this worship so far very much. Thank you to the song leaders and those who led prayers for those participants in your seat. And thank you to Chris for leading that song. I think it paints a beautiful picture of the whole uh, crucifixion scene. And it definitely has my mind in the right place this morning. So thank you for being here. It's great to see everyone today. We have a few visitors. It's, it's great to be with you today to worship our God together. Today we're going to be studying from Hebrews chapter 5. And in this chapter, uh, we're going to be building on, as everything has in this letter, the, the previous chapters, the previous, uh, everything that's come before this in the book of Hebrews. So we'll do a quick review, but we're going to try to plug through quite a few verses today and let the context do the work. So uh, uh, if you want to get your Bibles out with me, we'll be pretty much, um, we'll be spending most of our time in Hebrews and uh, you can follow along there. I'll be using uh, the New American Standard. So it's uh, just a little bit different than the New King James. But it should be pretty easy to read. Easy to understand for us. So typically I read the, the whole chapter we're going to go through. But in order to save time, I'm just going to go through it verse by verse to start. So Hebrews chapter 5. Leading up to this, uh, we just covered Hebrews chapter 4 last time I spoke. And in the book of Hebrews... Uh, we've covered these main ideas so far. The fact that, number one, in chapter one, Jesus is divine. Then we went on to talk about how Jesus is greater than those great and awesome angels. Even those destroying angels, Jesus is greater than them. Jesus is now greater than the prophets. This is quite a large section of the book of Hebrews talking about how he is greater than the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but yet he is he supersedes even the Old Testament people and uh, the actions there. So in the book of Hebrews, we've come this far, and last time that the immediate context is a couple of verses I'll read from chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. So that no one will perish by, by following their example of disobedience. Then he goes on to say, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, this Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, who has come down to us and who has gone back to God, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold on tight and, and grow for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So this is the immediately preceding verses. Remember, uh, the original writers didn't put verses, so there's no break here. This is a, a continuation of thought. And so we move right on into Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men... And things pertaining to God. So before we jump in uh, to the extents of this, this study, this topic of the priesthood keeps coming up. And not everyone who reads this is familiar with, with what a priest was. Not everyone in here uh, has an extensive knowledge of, of the old law. And so just for a quick uh, background, we learned last week when Shahe taught us about, he gave us a pretty big overview of the whole Bible, and we talked about how Adam and Eve were kind of a type of priests in the garden, uh, working before the Lord. Then in the Old Testament, 
The priests were those who were designated to serve in God's house. They were the, the tribe of Levi or Levi's family, his descendants. And then now in the New Testament, we're told that we are a kingdom of priests. Every one of us here who is a member of God's family is a kingdom of priests. But simply put, the role of a priest is someone who goes to God on behalf of man and connects with man on behalf of, on behalf of God. That's a simple concept. It's a, it's a connection to the divine. Now, this isn't unique to Christianity, though. And I think it's something that God put inside of us to understand. It's, it's a natural law or a natural desire to have someone to help us understand the divine, to connect to the divine. You, it doesn't matter what religion you go to or even really what spirituality. Because some people aren't, don't consider themselves religious but maybe they're a spiritual person. They, they're in tune with spiritual things, they might say. They still go to maybe a yogi. Maybe uh, someone goes to a shaman. They go to, uh, in other religions, you have the, uh, uh, the Dalai Lama for Buddhism. You have uh, the Pujari. You have different levels of people who act as a go-between between God and man, supposedly. And so the priest in the Old Testament is this, is this fulfillment, someone who would help man understand God and his word and would help uh, man offer sacrifices in the Old Testament and now uh, connect to God today just like we do. So a very simple concept. Someone needs to go between man and God. So Jesus was not just a priest. He was the high priest. So we started out in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. So Aaron was the first high priest. He was appointed by God uh, in place of Moses. He was appointed by God for this role. And so the high priests don't choose this for themselves. No, God appoints them in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That was the role of the high priest in the Old Testament, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It was also, though, that he could deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. This is the way the New American Standard words it. The New King James and several others word it, uh, the ignorant and, uh, I think, gone astray. So we'll talk about that difference in just a minute. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he also himself is beset with weaknesses. Now this is a beautiful concept that I think has been tarnished a little bit. When we think of religious leaders, a lot of times it's, it's muddied with the idea that we've seen in the world. And especially people who, who don't have a religious affiliation. They've got a really muddied, tainted idea of what a religious leader should be. We hear so much of corruption in, uh, in, re in religious elite. Or corruption with church leaders where they were uh, stealing money. Or maybe they were uh, committing inappropriate acts. They were getting, uh, they had scandals, this and that. We, there's a lot of, uh, what's the word? There's a lot of... Uh, shady behavior we've seen from church leaders who've taken advantage of their role. But that's not the role God designed. And it's really beautiful when you read it, even from the Old Testament. He was one who went to God offering sacrifices, and he was designed to be someone who wasn't just high and mighty above the people, but he was with them enough to be gentle with them. And I think it's important to understand God's design for, for this role, for a spiritual leader. Because it's, it's not the, the nasty role that we've seen it become in, in uh, many circles. God has designed a beautiful system, even from the beginning of time. 
even when maybe in the old law or in the old days, we would have considered that to be a, a hard time, a, 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 an eye for an eye time, where there's a lot of wars. There's a lot of things going on that, that we could look back and say, man, we have it easy now for survival and many things like that. Even in a time like that, God didn't overlook the need for his leaders to be gentle with his people. And now, he's, and now he's, he's taking this and he's showing us Jesus in light of this concept. Since he himself is also beset with weaknesses, that's why the high priest can understand. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. So the high priest didn't just go, oh, you poor guys down there with your immorality and sin. No, he was doing it for himself too. It was for him, but it's different for Jesus because Jesus never sinned. Now, I underline these words, ignorant and misguided. And this is kind of a side point, so we'll kind of take a pause and talk about this for a minute. When I think about those who are lost sometimes, I have a, a view of them I don't think I should have. He points out here that people can be ignorant and misguided. Now, this word ignorant doesn't mean you have a hard heart necessarily. Ignorance just means you don't know something about it. I think it was Mark Twain that said we're all ignorant just about different things. We all have a lack of understanding and we can all especially be misguided. I like the way the New American Standard worded that. Uh, the other word is maybe uh, gone astray. But it has a connotation either way you look at the translation of being misled or being misguided. And this is a concept uh, that we can see throughout the Bible. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, it says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good, good news of good things. So, people can be ignorant in the world, but I think we've got to be careful not to look at the world like it's just a bunch of people who don't ever want the gospel. We can be ignorant ourselves. And so especially if you're ignorant of this, that's the job of God's people. Specifically, it's mentioning of the high priest, but it's God's people's job to help with ignorance and those who are misguided. And this one especially, I want to talk about from, Roman, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 23. This idea of being misguided uh, really hit home for me when Oakdale was doing the eldership study. And we were talking a lot about the role of a shepherd. The shepherd and the elders described as one who should be a shepherd helping the people along. And in that process, I came across this verse in the study of that. In Jeremiah chapter 23, it says this. God's people had gone all astray and were committing sin. But in the middle of all that, it says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to tend to you for the, for you, for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. In the midst of a nation who is off and who is sinning, God went after the shepherds who were misleading the people. He says, I'm going to come down on them. Verse 3, then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. I believe this is a prophecy of Jesus to come in the New Testament. And they will be fruitful and multiply. 
I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. God was going to come back and get them and shepherd them himself. Jesus did that. Jesus came down himself and saw a bunch of leaders who had misled his people. And he was frustrated and angry with it. And he said, I'm going to come down myself, and I'm going to lead my people, and I'm going to shepherd my flock. And the point is, until we have compassion for the misguided, we will just be bitter against the world. We're going to have an us versus them mentality. We're going to throw mental grenades out of this building at them. But our job is to have compassion on the ignorant and misguided. To know that we ourselves could be in their same shoes. What would we want? God's will is for his people not to just know, but to share with compassion. So that the world can know. Because if we are, see the world as a world full of people who don't want it, what kind of life is that to live? Is that really the gospel driver? I was talking, or I heard Isaac say, uh, you know, my friend who was converted, um, he's spoken here before. He was talking about this idea of evangelism and this idea of people thinking, man, nobody wants it. And he was like, they were telling me that. They were talking to me, someone who's converted. There was someone else in the situation who was converted telling us about how nobody wants it. And he was like, what does that make you feel? How do you think I feel about that? You're sitting here telling me nobody wants this. I am a convert. He's now a preacher of the gospel. And he's saying, nobody, nobody, people are telling him nobody wants it. That's not true. May we have compassion on the ignorant and misguided. That is the role of God's leaders of all time. Going on in verse 4. And no one takes the honor to himself. So this honor of being set apart as a high priest. No one takes the honor to himself. But he receives it when he is called by God even as Aaron was. So in the Old Testament, you didn't just say, I'm going to step into this role. God had to appoint you. Aaron was the first one. Verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is tying in a lot of the, the concepts of Jesus being the eternal son of God. Being God's son, we talked about in chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews. And he's continuing to, to spiral that in, into his, into his uh, teaching. That Jesus didn't, pick, didn't do this for himself, but God chose him and God uh, appointed him. And it says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who in the world is that funny name? We'll talk about that more uh, probably in another study because he doesn't spend a lot of time on it here. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. I highlighted this phrase, the days of his flesh, because I just thought it's going to be interesting. It's just crazy to think that one day we're going to be able to talk about our lives as the days of our flesh. There's going to be a day once this life is over where we're going to maybe look back in heaven and think, man, you know, the days in my flesh, when the back in the days of my flesh. And that's what this is referencing of Jesus. The days when he was alive on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying. And tears to the one 
able to save him. A lot of times when, you, when we hear of a hero in literature and movies or whatever it is, the hero is pre- shown as this person who's never, never wavered, never, uh, never slipping up, never, um, never daunted. But man, it paints such a real picture of Jesus and one that I'm glad God gave us the reality of. That he was, man, he, he had loud crying and tears. He was driven to the point of coming on his knees to God from his trials. That is something that we can all relate to. Jesus was driven to his knees by life. And he wasn't driven to the point that he just overcame everything on his own. Even he went to the one who was able to save him from death. We are driven to our knees sometimes with nowhere to go. Even Jesus did that. And he was heard because of his piety. You know, it's interesting. He could have said anything like he was heard because he was God's son. He was heard because he was God himself. It says that he was heard because of his piety or his reverence. That can be translated. He wasn't just... It gives a reason that's very specific. Frank prayed today that with an attitude of reverence he started his prayer with, he said. And Jesus was heard because of his reverence. It's a hard concept to grasp. Deity being reverent to deity, but it is a beautiful example for us. Verse 8. Although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Jesus had to learn obedience. Jesus had to go through things like ordinary life and he had to be obedient. He had to be obedient through the spectacular challenges like the crucifixion. He had to be obedient as a young man. He had to learn obedience as a child. And he had to learn obedience to human authority. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it says, And he went down with them, speaking of uh, uh, when he was in Nazareth with his parents. He went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued, oh, excuse me. This is the situation where Jesus had gone uh, to Jerusalem with his family. And then he was left by himself. And his parents came, uh, came back looking for him. And they finally found him. And after they found him and, and he said, uh, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? He was in the temple uh, talking and asking questions and speaking with them. After that, it says, and he went down with them. So he went back with his parents and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. The things about Jesus' potential and his, and his goals and his mindset. Verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. It gives us four things here that Jesus increased in. He grew in understanding. His physique grew. He became a man. He grew spiritually, his favor with God, and he grew socially, his favor with men. Jesus had to learn. He had to learn obedience. He had to learn how to be a man, how to be a person. Verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 5 goes on to say, and having been made perfect. So there's that idea again. He wasn't just, it wasn't just when he was born he was perfect. He had to become it. We know as people there's a certain level of becoming we've already talked about in Hebrews. Where you have to sort of earn your stripes. He became and he was made perfect through, through the things that he endured and learned. He was made perfect and he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. It is fascinating to think that there is a source of eternal salvation. 
You know, it's, it's awesome if, if, if you need water to find a source of water. We think of a source of, of wood. You know, if you're in a forest, that's a source of wood, a source of something you need. You can find a source of gold in the mountains. And it's crazy what people will do to get to that gold. They will carve up mountains. They will take away mountains. They will excavate and filter and sift to no end to find gold. And it's fascinating that we have a source of eternal salvation, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ himself. We have a source of eternal salvation. It goes on to say, verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say. There's a lot to say about Melchizedek, and it is hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Because you have become dull of hearing. They were to the point where their, their ears weren't necessarily bad. He's not saying it's their ears that they couldn't hear. He's saying that their hearts. Jesus often said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody has ears, but he's talking about a spiritual disposition to listen. We've already learned that the book of Hebrews told us that the word of God is sharp. Is our hearing sharp? Is our spiritual hearing sharp? Or do we have dull hearing? May we have sharp spiritual ears. There's people in here who are hard of hearing or have dull hearing physically, but are very sharp spiritual minds. That's what matters in God's sight. There's people here with hearing aids who have sharp spiritual ears. It doesn't matter how you hear. It's a matter about how your mind receives it. May we have sharp spiritual ears. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... By this time, they are Hebrews who have learned the word. They're Hebrew Christians. By this time, these people have heard it long enough. You should be teachers. But you, have, but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So the issue, one of the things he's, he's kind of finally built up to, you understand this great Jesus. You understand how powerful and mighty he is. And you're lacking. You should be a teacher of this. You should understand how great this is to where you should be teaching other people. But you still have to have people teach you. I've heard this referred to as kind of mouth open Christianity. Feed me. And it can be like that sometimes for us at church. Do I come to church? Do I approach my spiritual life with a feed me mentality? Do you come here waiting for someone else to feed you? Or do you come here ready to participate, encourage, to try to strengthen others? Or are we the ones feeding off of other people constantly? And he's specifically talking and teaching. Now, with the teaching, he does not distinguish between man or woman, and he does not distinguish between public or private. That's the beauty of this passage to me. Is there's not anybody in this room who's exempt. Any uh, sentient person in this room who can understand God's word can understand the beauties of it and have known it for long enough, we should be teaching. You might not be, have to teach up here. That's not the role he's talking about. He's talking about any role where you can teach someone else. God's word is designed to not be kept to self. If you learn it and you truly understand it, you can't keep it to yourself. That's why when Jesus says the man will... Uh, 
God will come and make his home with him, and the word of God will become a fountain of living water springing out of him. You can't keep it in. Water goes in, it's got to come out of a fountain. And that's the idea uh, with God's word, is it cannot just be learned and kept. You don't have to teach up here. If that's your role, great. But for, for the women, this is just as much you. You have just as much of a role in this. That if you've been knowing God's word long enough, if you have known it long enough, you should be ready to teach. Now, not everyone in this room is in that position. There's people who are spiritually young, and that's fine. And we'll talk about that in the next slide. He says, for everyone who partakes of only milk, only milk, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. The word of righteousness is something you have to get accustomed to. You have to immerse yourself in it. You have to live it and study it for it to become something you can handle more of. Because if you don't do that, you're going to be stuck on milk. You're going to be stuck with the baby food. And God does not want that. And you know, as I, as I teach this, I want you to be clear. I forgot to say this at the beginning. A lot of this is, is going to sound like I'm preaching at you. This is just as much of me. But I feel like it's a disservice if I don't teach it with the urgency that the writer is saying. But if I don't move on from milk, and if I don't get accustomed to God's word, I'm a spiritual infant. And that is supposed to be kind of funny, but also not funny. It's, it's cute for a while when a baby is eating baby food. They need to be taken care of. They need to be nurtured. Someone else has to feed them. But there's a point at which it's not cute anymore. It's not cute to be a man being fed by somebody else or to be a man drinking from a, a bottle of milk. It's supposed to be funny because it's, it's embarrassing to be a baby still when you're old. But it's also not supposed to be funny because it's like, seriously, that's bad. God's will does not just go away. God's word is eternal. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. This is going to be here for eternity. Are we going to be spiritual babies for eternity? Are we going to be spiritually immature for eternity? So the question is, who's feeding you? Because we went in this verse, you ought to be teachers. Is someone else exclusively teaching you? There's nothing wrong. I'm taught to all the time. I have a lot to learn too. I'm taught from my seat as well. But is that my exclusive diet? Is that my exclusive spiritual diet? Is it all the spiritual nourishment you get when you come to church? Or are you able to feed yourself? Because once you can feed yourself, then you can work on feeding others. That's the natural life cycle of the Christian. That's not supposed to be forever. It's cute, beautiful, and natural for a baby to be a baby while it's a baby, but not after that. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, how do you become mature? Practice. Repetition, who, beca who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. For a while it can be frustrating, because even if you care about spiritual things, you're going to be frustrated by the process of practice. There's a lot of times where I've had questions and I can feel frustrated by just having the questions and never the answers. And, and even when you have the answers, you don't feel like you fully understand it. I have tons to learn. And, and there are many people in here who, uh, who are way more mature than I am. 
But are we practicing spiritual things? And are, are our senses being trained to discern good and evil? You can't always explain the process. You can't always hear it from a lesson and have somebody tell us in a lesson what to do, what to think. We have to practice it ourselves to be discerning. When uh, I was going through my teacher training, we had this uh, tool we used called the depth of knowledge wheel. And the wheel of depth of knowledge, they call it the DOK wheel. There's level one, two, three, and four. And basically, we, our goal is to take students from level one to where they can do level four type things. And I know it's really small, but level one is basically recall. So if you can recall a lesson, that would be what would be considered a level one depth of knowledge. Level two would be a skill or a concept that you can take away. Level three is where we're, is as teachers, they were really wanting us to work on stay in the level three and four type of activities where you can get your students uh, assessing, comparing, investigating, differentiating, drawing conclusions, citing evidence, critiquing, formulating, developing a logical argument. It's great. And I remember the first time that I was really starting to memorize. Where is it? Memorize. There's memorize up here. That first time when I was starting to learn my first verses, that was all I could do. And that was great. When I memorized my first couple verses, that was great. And we need to continue to do all these things. But just recall and just repeating and just stating or even listening. Listening is not even on this because that's, that's just an act. It's not even a skill necessarily. Level two, being able to get more parameters for understanding it and a little bit more ability to interact with the concept. But level four is what we're encouraged to connect, to synthesize, to, to basically apply that is basically the whole idea of level four for students. If we want them to apply a concept, that's why they want us to do in projects. That's life for a Christian. Once we can take something, put it into application and apply it to our lives, and even to explain it to others. I think there's one on here uh, where you can explain to others. If, if my student can explain how to do something to another, I know they've got that down. But that's a, a simple biblical concept all along. So this is Hebrews chapter 5. We're, we're a little bit early, so I'm, I didn't know if I was going to go into chapter 6 a little, but you cannot stop the context here. So I'm going to go a little bit further. But so far in chapter 5, we learned these few things. We need to have compassion on the ignorant and misguided. That we have uh, Christ as an example. He had to learn obedience the hard way, just like us. And we have a source of eternal salvation. Don't be a man-child. Those are our lessons from Hebrews chapter 5. But the context does not stop there. And I don't want to leave us with that uh, kind of harsh ending. Hebrews chapter 6 goes on to say, Therefore, after all those things we just said, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, the basics, the very milk of the word, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. If you were going to build a building and you just laid the foundation over and over, that house wouldn't get anywhere. He says, don't keep laying the same foundation from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And these we will do if God permits. It's not like we're, not like we're eliminating these, but we need to move on to the next thing. And I think maybe we'll talk about this more later, but I want to 
get the points he's making. Verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Not too long ago, I heard read that verse and I was like, is it saying that there's people who it's impossible to save? Because it sounds like that at first read. Now, maybe we'll spend more time on this next time, but in short, I, number one, I believe that a lot of this is talking about the powers of the age to come, maybe being the church age, where the New Testament church, they were given miracles to see the powers of the age to come, where they were proving that Christ was the Messiah with miracles and setting up his church with miracles. So I don't know if this is even necessarily talking about uh, people in this dispensation. But either way, I, feel, I think we can still get the point. He says, those people who have fallen away after seeing all this, after partaking of the Holy Spirit, after tasting the heavenly calling, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, the point being, it's dangerous if you go through all the steps of knowing and then you just don't progress. This is the danger of not progressing that we started last chapter. He said it's dangerous to stay a spiritual baby because if you just see all that and you move on, there is nothing that can be done for them. Now, does that mean there's anyone in this room who's danger of, in danger of never being able to be saved? I believe what this is saying is it's impossible for anyone else to renew them. Because there's nothing that I can do for one of my friends who has left the church. It's up to them. I cannot renew them to repentance. That is totally up to them. And there's nothing that I can do to change their hearts if they've heard it already. It's up to them. So I don't think this is saying that there's people in this room who, who can never be saved. Or that there are friends who just, they're, they're a lost cause. I think it's just saying that we cannot always control it. It's up to them. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put into open shame. Now after backing off that point, the point is still the same. It's, it's, it's a bad thing. It's, it's humiliating for Christ to be put to an open shame after already seeing everything beautiful he's done for them. After already being, having seen the wonders of Christ. It's a shame to him. What if that was you who sacrificed and saw somebody just walk away from you? That would hurt. That would be an open shame. For the ground that drinks in the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. So he's going to tell us two types of ground. One ground takes that rain and it produces vegetation. That's basically the, the good soil that accepts and lives and thrives and grows in God's word. That receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. These are two types of people. One type of person who takes God's word and lives it out and grows in it is blessed by God. But someone, if someone takes God's word and, and just doesn't grow anything good from it, 
that's, that's close to being cursed. If you have a field that never puts out any good uh, crops, they would curse that field and say, forget it, we're moving on to a different part of the land. Now, obviously God's a God of mercy, so it doesn't, that whole analogy doesn't completely apply. But that soil that will not ever repent, the end is to be burned. And that's a, a really harsh reality, but it's the reality. And, and we will be wrong to not teach it. You have the choice. Are you going to be a thorny ground that doesn't respond? Or are you going to be good ground? Good ground doesn't always look green and fertile, though. Sometimes there's stages where ground takes a while. It can, you can have the ground without all these plants and all the, the foliage. It, it takes time sometimes. But today you can set a course. Am I going to be good ground or am I going to be thorny ground? From God's word. Verse 9. This is where I couldn't end, I couldn't end before. Because he goes on to say, but beloved, people we love, we are convinced of better things concerning you. We're convinced that you're not, that you're not going to be stopping there. You're going to be better than that. You got this. And things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. We're talking some harsh things, but we're confident you can be better than this. For God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. This is deeply personal. Maybe there's people in this audience who don't feel like they're at the spot where they maybe used to be. Or maybe you, you're in, we go through phases. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. And maybe this is, if this is a down phase for you, God is not unjust to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Even if you are in a down spot, God doesn't forget it. That's incredibly encouraging. I, there's a song called... Uh, uh, remember the bad and the good you just forget. That's not God. God remembers that love that you've shown toward his name in having ministered or served and in still ministering, serving to the saints. God doesn't forget that. That's a wonderfully comforting scripture. Verse, nine, verse 11. This is the last one we'll cover. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, he doesn't just say, I want you to be diligent so you'll make the church stronger, which you could have said that, but the diligence is also for the full assurance of hope of the individual. So you're not going to have the full assurance of hope unless you're a diligent person in Christ. It is for the benefit of others and for Christ's cause, but you can, it, it seems here you can only have the full assurance of hope when you're immersed in it, when you're living it, and when you are all about it until the end. God wants us to be assured in our hope. God does not want us to be unconfident. First John says that, uh, that I believe it's First John, says that, uh, that he has written to them so that they would know and have assurance of their salvation. That's God's plan. And we must be diligent to enjoy it that way. And the cure for sluggishness is diligence. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know what I don't want to work out the most? It's actually not even when I'm sore from another workout. It's not when I am uh, just worked out the day before. The time that I want to work out the least 
is when I haven't worked out in a month or two. My body is in a, and I have no momentum, and I feel sluggish. But when I get up and get going, and I work out today, the next day I want to more. And the next day I want to even more, because my body has momentum. It's a, it's, a, it's a continual snowball of good things. That is our lesson for today. I hope that we can, myself, starting with myself, take something from this and learn from Hebrews chapter 5 and half of Hebrews chapter 6 so that we can become fruitful and multiply in the service of our God together. If you've heard the word today, and maybe you're not even, you're, you're not even started on this process yet. Maybe you're not even a babe. Maybe you're, just, maybe you're waiting to be reborn at this point. You can be born again today. You can hear the word, which you've already done today. You can believe on Jesus Christ. You can repent of your past life and change to go his way. And confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And be baptized for the remission of your sins. And be born again at that point. If you want to start by being a babe, it's beautiful. It is a beautiful process. We've seen it recently. And man, there's nothing better than it. And from there, go on to live a Christian life. Like Shahi taught last week, it's, we're, not, we're not stopping there. It is a whole plan where we live it out in, in our lives. And if you either want to start today, or if you want to get something right, um, we'd be happy to help you this morning while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.